Man, powerful worship, powerful worship this morning. I'm grateful for it. Uh, I say it every week and I mean it every week. It brings me great joy to hear the people of God singing praises to God. Uh, I just stand down here uh, and hearing you worship helps me worship. Uh, And it's just an amazing thing, an amazing thing. Uh, Many of us have fond memories of our grandparents. Um, I have uh, some wonderful memories of my uh, mom's mom. Uh, One of the best memories I have is on Saturday mornings, waking up, uh, running. She lived right across the street. Uh, So I would wake up, I would run across the street, and as soon as I opened the door, the smell of homemade bread was amazing. I mean, you know, she was a school cafeteria worker. And this is back when school lunches were really, 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 really yummy. Okay? And so the, the rolls were really, really, really yummy. As soon as you opened the door, that's all you smelled. Every Saturday morning was homemade yeast rolls. And I love that. I will never forget that. Uh, in fact, I, I would walk in. Now, she was already several rounds into it. Uh, but I would always help finish it out. I would go in, I would start helping make it, and she taught me the recipe. And to this day, I think I'm the only one in the family who knows the recipe. And I don't care how much my cousins beg, plead, or want to pay. I'm not giving it to them. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is me and my grandma, all right? It's actually, I have shared it with some of them, kind of. I, I changed an ingredient. <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I love that memory of baking bread and tasting bread and and even today, Larson's helped uh, me make the bread, and I've taught her the recipe. And uh, it's just these fond memories of baking bread with her that I'll never forget, never, never, ever, ever forget. And as we come to John chapter 6, is where we'll be at today, we're going to have a little story about bread. And uh, it's a very rememberable story. It's such a powerful, rememberable story that it finds itself in all four of the Gospels. Uh, It also has a powerful reference to the Old Testament, a powerful memory that the Jewish people have that is often celebrated at Passover is God providing for them in the wilderness the manna. Now the manna in heaven just means what is it? That's what manna means, but it was was a little bread kind of cake. And so that kind of sets the stage. And as we get to John chapter 6, I want you to have the Old Testament Uh, There was actually two Old Testament stories I want you to have in mind. We're just going to kind of reference one today. But God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness with bread from heaven. They also had this strong memory of crossing the Red Sea. It would have been told to generations. And so next week we're going to look at Jesus walking on water. And so as you look at the Gospels, and especially the Gospels of John, there are echoes of Exodus all throughout the Gospels. There are echoes that tie Jesus back to the Old Testament. Echoes that, are, that the authors are trying to show the readers prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law that Moses gave us. And in fact, we just got done talking about Jesus' credentials. John chapter 5, the end of it, Jesus gave us his resume. This is who he is. And then last week, these were his references, and the main references we focused on was that from Genesis to Revelation, all of Scripture is Christ-centered. And that was seen in John 5, 46, where Jesus himself says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, 
because he wrote about me. So that's kind of the concluding thoughts of John chapter 5. And John, the author, starts to build on the idea that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so as we go into chapter 6, now, uh, a lot like chapter 5, chapter 6 is one large unit. It's all one connected story. Now, if you would let me preach for about three or four hours, I could get through all of chapter 6. But then family house would be crowded when we got there, and it would just be a problem. So we're going to break chapter 6 into several sections. Okay, but as we study this, keep in mind that it is a unified chapter. And these first two stories that John gives us, the one we'll look at today, the one we'll look at next week, lead up to the very first I am statement, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Okay, so the next two weeks are all going to be leading up to Jesus' powerful sermon where he says, I am the bread of life. But today, we'll continue the idea that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, Moses is held in very high regard by the Jewish leaders of the day. The religious leaders of that day would have seen Moses as a Messiah-like figure. Because, I mean, think about what Moses did. He rescued his, God's people from bondage. He rescued them from the slavery of Egypt. Moses led these people out into the wilderness, out of captivity. He was, in essence, a savior for the people. He was a shepherd who led them. And he was a great leader. Moses was a great, great leader. He was not a perfect leader, but he was a great leader. Moses uh, had a multitude of people. The whole nation followed him. Uh, he was a person who led, he protected, he provided. Oftentimes, Moses was a mediator. Okay, we can think of things that Moses, you know, the people would rebel, they would sin in the wilderness, and then there would be consequences, and the people would cry out to God and to Moses, and Moses would go before God as a mediator. And someone who was interceding and pray, praying intercessory prayers for his people. Uh, Moses is, uh, is so, so all of these reasons are why Moses is seen as kind of an ideal Messiah. But here's what Moses himself wrote in Genesis 3.15. Again, Moses was given this information from God. Uh, what he writes in 3.15 uh, is after humanity has sinned. And Moses writes these words, the words of God, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is God talking to the serpent on how in Genesis 3.15, God had already made a way to restore his people. The brokenness that sin caused, God already has a plan of restoration. And so as great as Moses is, this passage that he writes in 3.15, in Genesis 3.15, says that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a greater leader. He is a greater protector. He is the perfect protector. He is the perfect provider. Jesus is the perfect good shepherd. So as great as Moses was, Jesus is greater. And the echoes of Exodus in this passage are clearly going to explain that to us. So we'll pick up in John chapter 6 this morning, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, 
a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up to a mountain and he sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. So Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for, uh, wouldn't be enough for each of them to have just a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a boy who's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in this place, and so they sat down. The men numbered in about, in about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them, filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over and those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. One of the most powerful miracles that Jesus, now all of them are powerful, but this one was so significant, it's in all four of the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, this is the fourth miracle. If you remember, the first one was turning water into wine in chapter 2. The second one was healing the royal, son, the royal official son at the end of chapter 4. And we saw in chapter 5, he was healing the paralytic man. So this is the fourth, uh, the fourth miracle in John's gospel out of the seven main ones that we see. And the main idea that we get is Jesus is greater than Moses. But in this passage, in this story, what I want you to see, Jesus leads us, Jesus feeds us, Jesus satisfies us. Jesus leads us, Jesus feeds us, and Jesus satisfies us. And it starts by Jesus recognizing and leading the people. The first four verses are setting the context after this. Uh, just going to give you a time frame. Uh, that word after this is just a John's transition. He's like, everything that happened in chapter 5, there's been a time that has elapsed until the events of chapter 6. We don't know how much time has elapsed. We don't know what exactly everything that has been going on. You can read the other Gospels to kind of figure out what Jesus has been doing. Just a few of these is he has already preached the Sermon on the Mount, that powerful sermon. He's been teaching parables about the kingdom. He's performed a lot of miracles and a lot of signs. And because of his teaching, because of his miracles, because of all these things, a huge crowd of people are following him. A huge crowd are following him. Now, here's where we're going to kind of see these echoes of Exodus. Uh, because Jesus is going to go to the kind of the west side of the sea, or excuse me, the east side of the sea. On the west side, it's very fertile, but where Jesus leads the people, or where the people follow Jesus, don't miss this, is a barren wilderness desert. 
That side of the Sea of Galilee is just wilderness. It is barren. Now there's grass, don't miss that, but there's not a lot of vegetation, there's not a lot of uh, trees, there's not a lot of growth other than just the grassiness of this particular hill. Where Moses led the people into the wilderness, Jesus has led them to a, a smaller type wilderness on the east side of the river. And it's a huge crowd of people. And then you see that Jesus sets down on a mountain. Don't miss the significance of mountains in the Bible. Where did Abraham take Isaac? To a mountain. Where did, Ab where did God provide the sacrifice so Abraham wouldn't have to kill Isaac? On a mountain. Moses received the Ten Commandments on a mountain. In 1 Kings 18, the prophets of Baal were defeated on a mountain. Jesus gave a sermon on a mountain. The transfiguration of Jesus happened on a mountain. Jesus is crucified on a hill, a mountain called Calvary. Mountains are a significant place in the Bible. And then we have it's near the Passover. Again, we think of the Passover. A lot of people say, well, the Passover is when the Jewish people celebrate the angel of death, as we call it, coming down and sweeping over, and the Israelites would sacrifice the lamb, paint the door frames with blood, and they were saved. But the Jews of, of Jesus' day celebrated so much more than that. It was a time to remember the manna. It was a time to remember the crossing of the Red Sea. And so as they get close to this Passover celebration, Jesus is on a mountain in a wilderness with all these people. Echoes of Exodus. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. So that sets the stage for what is getting ready to happen. In verse 5, here's what I want you to see. The very first thing, Jesus sees the needs of the people. As Jesus is sitting there, he looks up, he lifts his head, and he sees the people. This phrase, lifting your eyes or lifting your head, is the exact same phrase that Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, the woman at the well has gone back to the village. The village is coming out to see Jesus, and the disciples are like, hey, we're hungry, let's eat. We don't, we're not focused on all these other people coming out here. We've got to take care of ourselves. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, lift your eyes and see that the harvest is ready. Here in this passage, Jesus himself lifts his eyes and sees the crowd of people and he sees their need. He sees their physical need. They're hungry. I mean, if you've been following Jesus, getting close to supper time, of course they're going to be hungry. I, I, I've, I've gone some time without eating. I get hangry, right? Anybody get hangry? I just, just throw it up there. That's right. We, we, get, we, we go a couple hours without some kind of substance. We're not, very, we're not in good mood. Jesus is like, these people are going to be kind of hungry. We don't want 5,000 hangry people because he's getting ready to preach and teach, right? He's like, we got to make sure that they're, they're ready to listen to the word. He sees their physical needs, but he also sees the spiritual needs. Often in the Gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus uses physical to teach about the spiritual. So as he's lifting his heads, he not only sees their physical needs, he sees their spiritual needs. He sees that they need a Savior. And what he sees is a lot of people who are desperately searching for hope. They're desperately searching for something more than life has given them. 
But he also sees that a lot of these people are simply there just for the food. Now that's kind of fast forwarding way to the end of chapter 6. But there's a lot of people who are following Jesus in this moment who aren't following him for the right reasons. And so Jesus sees that. He sees all the spiritual needs. He sees their hearts. He sees their motivation. He sees that many of them are only following because of what he has done for them as far as signs. But he also sees the authentic followers who desperately, desperately want something better out of life. Other gospels use the word compassion where Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion. He feels their pain. He is burdened by what he sees. People who are hungry for freedom, hungry for life. And so seeing the need, Jesus becomes the provider of the provision. Jesus will provide the provision that these people need. He identifies the problem to one of his disciples named Philip. He says, Philip, where will we buy bread for these people so they can eat? Now, here's you got to understand something. Philip, he's from this area. He grew up not too far from where this is happening. So if you're going to ask a guy, where do I get food? Philip's the guy. So Jesus says, hey, where's the cookout? Where's the Piggly Wiggly? Where's the Whataburger? Where can I go get food for 5,000 people? It's like, you think 73 in Maine will have, you know, reservations for 5,000? You know, where do we go get this, Right? So that's what he's asking. Philip, where, where can we go get some grub for all, these, for all these people? And Philip, I love this. Philip's a very practical individual. And you can almost see his eyes. He looks at Jesus. Milk, Chick-fil-A, the, whole, the holy chicken. It's right down there. And then he looked at 5,000 people. And so he brings out his TI-83 calculator. He starts doing the math. One denarii is what one person makes in a day. Or it's a daily wage of the average person, 200. So basically, income for uh, three quarters of a year is not enough to pay for the food to these people. He says, Jesus, we ain't got enough money to buy anything. Now, we can go get some crumbs at the Walmart, and we can give a crumb to each person, and then that'll be enough to give them just a crumb, but we're not going to fill them up. There's absolutely... Philip sees an impossibility. Philip sees the impossible task. And I don't blame him. If it was me, I'm a problem solver and I would have looked at it and I would have brought out my calculator. I got a degree in math. Still need a calculator. And I would have, I would have done it too. It's like, we can't feed 5,000 people. Food's expensive today. That's a lot of money. But Jesus says this was a test. Now, Philip failed the test. You see, what Jesus was looking for was Philip to say, Jesus, I have no idea how would you feed these people? How would, you know, he wants Philip to say, I trust you to provide. You see, Philip's been following Jesus for a while. He still doesn't quite understand that this is a learning experience. We're not knocking Philip. It's a learning experience. For you and I, it's this. When we face impossible situations, are we going to let Jesus lead us through the impossible situations? Or are we going to try to solve it ourselves? Are we going to try to come up with our own plan and our own methods and our own, or are we going to look at it and say, this is impossible, I quit. I can't do it. I'm, I'm out. Or are we going to trust Jesus to lead us through each and every impossible situation that we face? Because I don't know about you, but life is filled with situations that seem impossible. And yet Jesus 
is the impossible solver, is the solver of all the impossible problems if we just trust him, if we just trust him. Now, I find this interesting. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, hey, there's a boy over here. So I don't know how this played out. I, I try to think I have a sanctified imagination and I try to put myself in the scenario. I try to think of what this could have looked like. And maybe Andrew was standing there when Jesus said, hey, Philip, where do we get something to eat? And Andrew's like, ain't nothing around here. I'm, and you, so you got Andrew running around 5,000 people looking for food, right? And he comes back, he's like, Jesus, I found a boy with a Lunchable. That's right. You know, we, we, we've got five barley loaves. Now, by the way, a barley loaf, it's not Logan's rolls, okay? I mean, it's not these big, fluffy hunks of bread. It's, not, it's more like a biscuit, but it's not a Pillsbury Grand's biscuit. It's like a little bitty, itty-bitty biscuit, very, very small, barley loaf. It is the food of the poor in the day, very, very, very small. So I got, I got five of these, and then I got some fish. I got two fish. This little boy, you got two fish. This isn't flounder. It's not a catfish. It's more like sardines that we put on pizza or a pickled fish, a dried fish. And he's got two of them. So when you understand exactly what he has, literally a Lunchable, that's all the food he has for 5,000 men. It's actually probably 20,000 people. You begin to see the impact of this miracle. Whereas God in the wilderness as the Israelites gave the people manna from heaven. Jesus is getting ready to take five itty-bitty biscuits, a couple of sardines, and feed 20,000 people. That's the problem. And yes, Andrew found this little boy, and Jesus knew he was going to find a little boy, and Jesus knew what he was going to do. And so now Jesus provides for the people. He provides them exactly what they need. Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks. Jesus gave thanks. It was a blessing. It probably would have went something like this. He would have held up the meal. He would have said, Blessed out thou art, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread of the earth. A very simple blessing. A very simple show of gratitude that God had provided such a small meal that was going to feed the people. And then one of my thing that stands out to me the most about this whole passage, Jesus distributed the food. He told his disciples, sit down. Y'all sit down too. We're told in other gospels that they're kind of put into groups. And Jesus distributes the food. The one who provided the provision is providing the food that these people need. And then he says, there are leftovers. And they're full. Jesus led them, he fed them, he satisfied them. They're full. They got to eat whatever they wanted. Not just what they needed, what they wanted. And they're satisfied. They're full. In the Exodus wilderness, there were no leftovers. Manna was not to be kept to the next day. But Jesus is greater than Moses. There's leftovers. What we see in this physical miracle is that Jesus leads and feeds and satisfies the hunger of our hearts. It's not just about bread. It's not just about eating. It's about all of us being 
hungry for something more, and Jesus provides it. The law that Moses wrote about, that will not fill the gaps or the holes in your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can satisfy your hearts. So Jesus sees your needs. He provides the provision as he's hanging on a cross. As he dies for me and for you, he satisfies our spiritual hunger. Because he is the provision that we are truly looking for. He's the perfect Messiah. He's God. And then there's a response in verses 14 and 15. John tells us that the people recognize, hey, this guy's a prophet. And then it says that Jesus realized what they were going to do. They were going to take him, make him a king, take him by force, make him a king, and he withdrew to the mountains. So the response of some of the people here was to take Jesus and make Jesus who they wanted him to be. Not who he was, who they wanted him to be. A segment of these people following were almost like political activists. They wanted to take Jesus and have him overthrow the Roman government, have him take all these religious leaders and throw them in jail so they could be oppressed like they had oppressed the people. They wanted to make him something he was not. Now, he is the king of kings, and he is the prince of peace, but he's not the kind of king they wanted him to be. So their response was to take the Son of God by force and set him on a Roman throne. What's your response to Jesus? Do you try to make Jesus who you want him to be? Someone who's going to provide for your every need? Or do you accept Jesus for who he is? The king of your heart. The monarch, the Messiah, who wants to make you who he created you to be. See the difference? We don't want to take Jesus and fit him into our box. Jesus wants to take us and restore us to what he created us to be in perfect union with God the Father. So what's your response to Jesus, who's greater than Moses, who leads, feeds, and satisfies our soul? Have you let him satisfy you today? That's my question. It's the question, I think, that comes out of the text. Is Jesus satisfying your heart? Or are you filling it with everything else? Work, school, boyfriends, girlfriends, marriage, kids? What are, drugs, alcohol, what are you trying to fill your heart with that's leaving you unsatisfied? This morning, the bread of life says, will you follow me and let me lead you, feed you, and sustain you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this day, for this passage. Help us to really see who you are and what you've done as we continue just to walk through the gospel of John. Help us to understand that you are the Messiah. Help us to believe in you so that by believing we would have eternal life. Help us to be a people who surrender to you, who allow you to make us who you've created us to be. Help us to submit to you. 
And Father, help us to tell the world about who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.